There are certain acronyms that tell us a world of information and tell us nothing. FBI means Federal Bureau of Investigation, and for so many years it was the sainted organization until we discovered that J. Edgar Hoover, director, was far, far less than a saint. But nonetheless, colored American thinking to a great extent. CIA, that means what, let's see. Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah, I forget, I forget. And sometimes, you know, it's the same acronym in Spanish for company. Company. La CIA. Yeah. The company. You're, you're hearing from the voice of a guy who knows just about all there is to know about it. He's run the course. He has, as used a phrase from a pop song of some time ago, Western, he has graduated. He's a graduate because of what? Uh, it's graduation time. I've had the course with you was the way the yeah. song ran. So. And you had the course CIA. His name is Dave McMichael, and he's an ex, an ex is a key factor, a CIA operative who was one of the founders of the Association of National Security Alumni. A word about that group, and then, of course, your story, which I find not only fascinating, but a terribly important one for all of us. So, the Association of National Security Alumni is what? Well, it's a group of uh, former CIA officers, who also uh, one or two ex-FBI guys, and people who served in other parts of the United States intelligence system. And uh, we'd been in, I'd say, loose connection with each other for a few years until the Iran-Contra affair erupted on the national consciousness in uh, late 1986. And at that time, we organized formally to, uh, to campaign in a uh, strictly nonpartisan, nonpolitical way for uh, what we regard as necessary change in the intelligence system. In fact, you were, you were called, popularly called, and I'm accurately, whistleblowers. You've blown the whistle on a number of Yeah, mo most of us at one point or another, you know, they say went public by blowing the whistle. In my own case, uh, in uh, 1984, uh, having left the agency a year before, I uh, <clears throat> went public with my opinion that the justification for the Contra War against Nicaragua, the so-called uh, delivery of arms from Managua to uh, the insurgents in El Salvador, was founded on what I told the world court was scanty and unreliable evidence. And they're going to ask me, people listening, who is this guy, Dave McMichael? former CIA operative who did, one of the guys who blew the whistle on the lies being fed the American public, especially during the Iran-Contra affair. And so we come to them, who is, I ask you, how it began, who are you? Uh, where you're from, <laughs> what you did, I know you were involved in the Korean War and you were wounded, but start in the beginning. Well, you know, basically, you know, I'm now 66 years old, born in uh, uh, Albany, New York in 1928. Grew up around New York City, in northern New Jersey, and uh, you know, the kid worked on the docks there during the Second World War. And turned when I turned old enough to go in the armed service in 1946, I enlisted in the Marine Corps. Served a couple of years, came out, took my college degree through the GI Bill, went back in as a commissioned officer during the Korean War, and stayed in the regular service until 1959 when. Let's say the commandant and I had differences of opinion. Well, you, you, got, you were at the front and you got wounded. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was a, it was a very brief tour. They mm -hmm. got to me, you know, very quickly. And uh, I, I did a number of things. I served in uh, amphibious reconnaissance, particularly in, during the 1950s. And as I say, when I resigned my commission in 1959, uh, not knowing what to do in civilian life, I, I went back to school, took a doctorate in history, taught for a few years. At the University of Oregon. Well, I, I did. I took my degree there, and I did teach there for a while. And uh, then I joined uh, what was then known as the Stanford Research Institute, today SRI International. And partly because of my both my academic and uh, military background, I went to work on Department of Defense contracts, first in Central America, and then uh, in uh, very early in 1966, Five it was. I went over to uh, Southeast Asia and was uh, promptly asked to go to work within the United States Embassy in Bangkok for a group, uh, an office headed by a very senior CIA officer. Now I can give you his name because he wrote a book, all right. Pierre de Silva. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was the Special Assistant for Counterinsurgency. So we were, we were countering the, the insurgents there. Wow, what does that mean, counterinsurgency? Well, you know, studs, 
Uh, in the period immediately after the Second World War, when the CIA was being organized and our whole Cold War super and substructures were being put together, uh, the, the official thinking was that uh, our enemy, the Soviet Union, was whose occupation of Eastern Europe, you see, was a, uh, an analog of the German occupation of Western Europe during the Second World War, you see. So the, uh, as a matter of fact, what we were doing, I read when I went through the Special Forces, the Army Special Forces School in the mid-50s, you see, the whole thinking was that uh, the objective was, as in, you know, the OSS had done during the Second World War, was to organize resistance groups, you see, uh, inside the occupied territories of Eastern Europe, so to speak. And uh, so that was the way the whole thinking went. But what was happening, actually, as you think back to the 1950s and 60s, that period leading up to the Vietnam War, was that the great, uh, you know, post-colonial liberation movements going on uh, were insurgencies against our allies in the West. So you had this, this flip. Against that came France to, and Vietnam. Yeah, sure. So the, the flip was that uh, all of a sudden these forces that we had trained, you see, to organize resistance to the Soviets, you see, uh, found themselves being employed as in ways of attempting to suppress groups being aided, in fact, by the Soviets to overthrow colonial regimes. So that was what counterinsurgency yeah. was all so about. This was, so they were indigenous movements to a great extent. They were all indigenous yeah. movements, yeah. sure. So we had to, so this is... I mean, look, you're, you're an Irishman, Studs, you know, and... and you know, <laughs> Not really, but... Well, well, you can be one if you want. <laughs> but, you know, who, in fact, was supporting the, you know, the Irish movement for independence during yeah. the First World War? Yeah. Of course, it was the Germans. I mean, you take yeah. your help where you can find it. Yeah. So this is the story. This is how it began. So now you weren't, you, you had not yet joined, uh, become a member, no. an operative of the no. CIA. no. As a matter of fact, I didn't do this until rather late in my career officially. I had done, as I say, worked in, uh, especially in Southeast Asia, you know, working very closely with the agency counterinsurgency operations there, uh, and then had done some uh, studies, you know, for the agency. I was, a, as I used to say, I was a, I was a big thinker in a small way, as I said at one point. And uh, <clears throat> in 1980, I happened to be back in Washington, D.C., doing some work for a private client, and uh, the agency had just organized its in-house think tank at the National Intelligence Council, the, the analytic group there. And um, I was agency in, meaning CIA. Yeah, CIA. Yeah. So also called company. As the company, yeah, if you will. And uh, as I say, I was a known quantity to them. They contacted me and hired me to go to work for this uh, this uh, think group at the at the National Intelligence Council. And there I, yes, because partly of my academic background and other stuff, I specialized in Western Hemisphere affairs. So what did they say to you uh, when you joined in, to join the CIA? What did they say to you the work would be, or the reason for this group? Well, it was uh, basically the guy who organized this, and I can give you his name because he came very public himself as a whistleblower during the, uh, the, the Robert Gates hearings uh, several years ago, Mr. Hal Ford very senior, very distinguished uh, agency guy uh, who was concerned that the, uh, the, the, the premier product of the intelligence system, the national intelligence estimates, uh, had become uh, devalued over the years and he wanted to you know, get better, better minds and put out a better product and this was his, his approach to it. He, he, he hired me, he said, because I I remind him of a Renaissance man. I said, utility infielder would be more like it. So, yeah. uh, so I worked for him a couple so of years. So where were you first job? Where were you stationed? No, I, we were right there at Langley. You know, we uh, were, you know Langley, you yeah. went to school at Langley, Virginia. No, no, no. I didn't even go to, I was brought in laterally. Uh. I mean, I was uh, supposedly qualified for what I was going to uh. do. I never went through there, the farm. Oh, because you had the period. previous experience. Well, that's, that's, what yeah. they, that's what they thought. So yeah. where were you stationed as the CIA? Well, at the, at the CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia, there. Oh, you were in Langley. Oh, that's right. And then what was your work? Well, basically what I was responsible for doing, working under the National Intelligence Officer for the Western Hemisphere, was a preparation of both the uh, special and general estimates on the situation in, uh, in Latin America. And of course, at that time, the big focus was on Central America, on El Salvador. And then after Mr. Casey came in, of course, we organized the Contra War against Nicaragua, and that was uh, a very heavy 
Well, we have to start, we, we have to go naturally the story is Dave McMichael. What made you take another course? You, at the beginning, you were, would, could I describe you as gung-ho at the beginning? Well, I, I, you could, yeah. you could. I suppose uh, I was not, uh, I've never been what you might call an ideologue, but no. I, you know, I, I was responding to something that my background suited me, I, I thought, to do. The, uh, you're asking, you know, like, where I went wrong, as, as they have, I'm yeah, sure, where frequently go, asked themselves, where did, go where did this guy go wrong? <laughs> and uh, basically, I was uh, doing some, under, by direction, analyses of the, uh, of the whole um, quasi-military situation in, in Central America. And... While you're in Langley. Yeah. And uh, what I couldn't find, Studs, you see, was the uh, evidence uh, which the administration was loudly proclaiming it had publicly uh, of this uh, flow of arms from Nicaragua to El Salvador, which was the official justification for the organization of the Contra War against Nicaragua. And I, uh, I found myself, uh, you know, constantly you know, running up against uh, difficulties because I, I couldn't, you know, and I was, you know, fighting that situation. So I, I served there for two years. The appointment to the group was two years. I, I, I don't want to get to the okay. technicality of that, but I was a regular officer of this. I was not a contract officer. And uh, when I'd finished my stint there, I'd made myself sufficiently unpopular with certain people at higher levels. Because you were asking questions all the time. Well, uh, I'd, I'd put it another way. I wasn't giving them the answers that they wanted. They were asking me the questions. Ah, now, when you say that, you weren't giving the answers they wanted. Yeah. Could you just explain that slightly? Sure. Uh, what was wanted, you see, were analyses of the, of the situation, which would demonstrate a number of things. Uh, first of all, uh, it was a fixed position. There was no such thing as an indigenous insurgent movement. It all had to be directed from Moscow. Matter of fact, I was... This is the answer they wanted. Oh, yeah. yeah. It kind of, you know, it, you had to track it from... It was the, the axis, so-called, was Moscow, Havana, Managua, and then on to uh, El Salvador. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you can argue this. And uh, I, I suppose you could say you could present some evidence of it, you know, but there's a problem here, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to digress for a moment because it, it's important for all kinds of business, the intelligence business particularly. See, is uh, people will frequently ask you, where is your proof, you know, and stuff, you see. Well, well, the best you can say in that business, here is the evidence, you see, because proof, as I don't need to tell you, results from placing evidence before a tribunal qualified to rule upon its validity, you see, and see whether it constitutes proof or not. Now, in this, in this case, uh, uh, we were dealing with stuff. I'll, I'll tell you this one off, right off the top. For example, a, a unilateral decision was made somewhere that when we got intercepts of messages uh, about the shipment of educational supplies from Cuba to Nicaragua, you see, is that arbitrarily it was decided that references to uh, notebooks, you see, or textbooks was references to uh, AKA rifles and that references to uh, uh, pencils and pens with reference to quantities of ammunition. There was no, no evidence ever brought forward to do that, but this, you know, this suited people when they wanted to do that. So it got to be a pretty, you know, silly exercise. So I they're thought. asking you to come up with that, say that was so, and you're saying, but it isn't so. I said, I can't you know, intellectually, you know, sign off on a report that says that. Their, their premise was, the postulate was, Soviets are behind this, these are not indigenous movements, and you're finding out the opposite is the case. I won't, I won't say that, you know, because certainly the, the then Soviet Union was very, very supportive of these, of these movements. It suited their long-range purposes as well. Did they organize and direct yeah. them? The answer to that, mm. from my opinion, yeah. of course, is no. And we're talking to David McMichael, former member of the CIA, as you may gather by now. It's a pretty good detective story. It's John le Carre. It's everything here. <laughs> and Dave that. McMichael, a CIA guy, and his questioning what he's doing, and therefore disturbing the big boys who want a set answer as part of the Cold War. Now they're starting to, you're getting to be a pain in the neck to them. Uh, I, I, I had heard that in various ways. 
And, you know, when I completed what was the way this in-house think tank that I referred to had been set up, you know, the idea that people would serve their two-year tours with it and then return to their, their home offices. Well, I had no home office. I came in from the outside. And, uh, you know, it was eventually made clear to me, uh, incidentally by Mr. Ford, that uh, uh, there was too much pressure and that I couldn't continue there. So, you know, I'm, I'm interested in maintaining a job, Studs. Believe me, I got, you know, things to do. But I, it was made clear to me that, uh, you know, I wasn't exactly welcome in other offices. Part of it was because I'd been brought in at a, a fairly high rank, you know, pay grade, and uh, people don't like to have their budgets busted. The other was, you know, I was, uh, had a reputation. And uh, so I left. I took, as a matter of fact, I took a... Uh, an outside contract with you left the CIA. Oh yeah, I took an outside contract with him for a few months, and I got thinking more and more about this stuff. And I uh, said, "Well, I'm gonna have to start doing some traveling. I'd save some money." And I was, I went down to Central America, and I was just mooching around, taking a look. And I happened to be uh, in Nicaragua at the time of the harbor mining incident of 1984. That's when we are. are military mined the harbors of, of Nicaragua that is in correct. violation of uh, international, international law, law among other things yes and causing by the way uh, several deaths of uh, foreign individuals and uh, the the objective of this by the way was to uh, discourage uh, shipping from calling at Nicaraguan ports because the insurance rates go up enormously you know and <laughs> you have things mm -hmm. like this happen and it occurred to me at that time uh, uh, that some of the, dare I use a technical term here. Please. Some of the Looney Tunes that I knew, you know, <laughs> that I've been working with were uh, possibly ginning up for the catastrophe of a direct invasion in Central America. And subsequently, There was that talk. That's right. And subsequently we know that the, the that decision was very close to being made. It was, time. that yeah. we might invade mm -hmm. Nicaragua. Yeah. At yeah. Sandinista time, of course. Yeah, of yeah. course. So I thought uh, if I were going to say anything, I should sooner do it sooner, you know, than, than after the fact. And all I cared to say, Studs, because I had signed the secrecy agreement, you know, never to reveal classified information and all that good stuff, right, is that uh, I, I did not wish to be prosecuted, first of all. I'm no martyr, I can assure you of that. And uh, so I thought I was in a good position because, first of all, I contacted an excellent lawyer, Mel Wolf of the, uh, formerly the ACLU, whom you know. Right. And... Uh, what I did was say, I didn't, I said, I'm not going to reveal any classified information. I said, what I'm going to say is, you ain't got any classified information to reveal that would prove what you're saying. And uh, so for a brief time, you know, I got my Warholian 15 minutes of uh, front page stuff. <laughs> and uh, as a matter of fact, wound up going to testify at the International Court of Justice in the case of Nicaragua versus the United States, where, as you know, the... Uh, the International Court found the United States guilty on 12 of 14 counts of, of violating Nicaragua's customary and treaty international law rights in this affair. And, uh, you know, found myself uh, just through that process linking up more and more with other people, John Stockwell, Ralph McGee. These are uh, former, so, yeah, former, former John CIA, Stockwell yes. was the bureau chief at Angola. Uh, Ralph McGee was, I forget where now. He was in Vietnam and Thailand. Vietnam yeah, and right. Thailand. Mm -hmm. uh, Phil Redinger was in uh, Guatemala. Right. He helped on the overthrow of a legally elected guy named Jacobo Arben, mm -hmm. working for the CIA. Right. These are the guys you... Yeah, these guys and, and several others, uh, you know, we, we began to correspond more. And then an event happened, you see, uh, which was the, the crash of the, the famous plane carrying Eugene Hassenfuss of La Crosse, Wisconsin, <laughs> in uh, Nicaragua, a plane carrying all sorts of arms and uh, causing the, the unraveling, you see, of what became known as Iran-Contra. And uh, we figured that if there were ever a time, you know, uh, that it would be possible, you know, to take advantage of the situation and get some necessary change, some better regulation, some better control, some more congressional uh, supervision of the intelligence system. This was the time to do it, and we felt 
and I think rightly that we had some credibility as people who had worked in the system, and most of us at reasonably high levels, to uh, you know to come forward and uh, and be listened to. And uh, I think does if uh, I hate to be sound discouraged, but uh, the one of the great lessons learned from Iran Contra, you see, is that to when everything is exposed and nothing is done, all that happens is you reinforce the, <laughs> the you know, the, the existing system. So it, uh, it, that's, that's been a rather discouraging part of this, but we worked hard at it, and I'm proud of what we have done. We have to continue picking up. Uh, the Iran Contra, why nothing happened, so much exposed, and Perhaps you could talk about that. But before that, you mentioned the various other CIA guys, agency heads in many cases, or bureau heads. Who? How did you know about these other guys? You sensed, you heard about others and their discomfiture with what was going on and the disenchantment. Like, say, John Stockwell in Angola, Phil Redinger. Mm -hmm. I know, I know, interviewed Phil Redinger for a forthcoming book, and he spoke of you getting mm -hmm. in touch with you there. Yeah. How, how did, was there an un... A word spread, is that it? Well, it's, it's a rather small community, uh, Studs, and uh, yeah, word, word spread. People whom I did not know or just simply knew of through their books and uh, so forth, they began to call me up. And, uh, and in the case of Ruttinger, I was uh, a little dismayed when this uh, long, tall, bald-headed yeah. uh, guy who identified himself as a former CIA officer shows up and finds me at an address in... Um, uh, in Central America, where I had no idea anybody knew where I was, <laughs> so I said, "What is this?" But uh, yeah, we 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 got together and uh, held a number of press conferences and and worked very hard to to push for our well, agenda. Now we got to go to the big one. Uh, a moment ago, you were saying stuff revealed and yet nothing happened. Yeah, we have to come to our country right now at this moment. Stuff was revealed. We have to talk about the media, the press itself, mm -hmm. certain journalists, perhaps and members of the CIA and certain congressmen, perhaps both Democratic, seemingly investigating this and Republican. We have to come, what, why don't you tell it from your vantage point as to what happened and what the American public thinks about it, if it does or if it cares. So you have to get into the, and this, this also involves radio, TV, and mm -hmm. the press. Where do you begin? It's, uh, the ball is yours, starting where you want to. Well, all right, let's, uh, let's start this uh, uh, studs at, at, and this is a mistake to do, start it here. Well, let's start it at the constitutional level, will you? All right. now, we have a country which is organized to be run in a certain way, right? And uh, this is a government which is accountable, supposedly, to the electorate. And... Uh, when you establish a, a, an extra-constitutional structure within that government, and from the very beginning, in the very beginning studies, the CIA and, you know, the, the, the official term uses a very fuzzy and warm one. It's the intelligence community. Community sounds nice, you know. But we're talking the intelligence system, you see, has been insulated, you know, from the normal controls and accountability of the United States government. Now, why was that? Well, it was because, and this was rationalized from the very beginning, you see, of the peculiar threat, you know, posed by the Soviet Union. So that even though it was recognized that this institution, these processes were uh, anomalous and contrary to the United States political and legal systems, yet they had to be allowed because we were facing this terrible threat, this terrible threat. And this you know, allows for abuse. Of course, we, we, you know, we hate to go back to Lord Acton, but we so frequently do, you know, is that... Uh, power corrupts. And power corrupts. Power and corrupts, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, and this is what has happened. There have been one exposure after another. You know, we, we had, of course, the, uh, the Watergate affair. We had the Church Committee and the Pike Committee hearings in, in the 1970s, you know. We had Iran-Contra. We've had uh, since then, you know... Uh, more exposures, and uh, yet, basically, you know, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Well, what has changed, you know, as a matter of fact, is that the uh, the rationale for this, the existence of this immediate, you know, threat to our national, not just our national security 
a term, by the way, which has no definition in law, but our national survival, you know, was threatened by the existence of the Soviet Union. So we had to do it, right? Soviet Union is now history. So now we are facing a situation, of course, where we want to look and see, all right, do we still need this? Do we still want this? And what dangers does it pose? And this gets back, I think, to, the, to part of the question that you, you, you asked with regard to the exposures of Iran-Contra and the fact that no one was held to account for them. Uh, if I were teaching a college course again, I would organize it around the final report of independent counsel Lawrence Walsh, a very conservative Nixon-appointed federal judge, retired and in private practice, who was selected by none other than Edwin Meese to be the, <laughs> the independent counsel to investigate Iran-Contra. And he subsequently, of course, wound up uh, coming very close to indicting Meese and discussing him in very unfavorable terms in his final report. Was, he was clobbered yeah, well, uh, by the ones who appointed him. Clobbered <coughs> in the sense, you see, that his uh, close to seven-year effort was uh, denigrated very largely as a waste of money. Well, in one sense it was, you know, because uh, despite returning numerous indictments, you know, despite getting numerous convictions, most of them overturned on, uh, on technical grounds, you see, uh, none of the publicly exposed rascals, you know, went to jail. And they, as they stayed out, you know, one of them, of course, ran for uh, United States Senator in, so in Virginia North, this not year. Only was not <laughs> convicted for the money. He was convicted. He was convicted, but became a national hero sure. and almost won the senatorial race in Carolina. No, in, in Virginia. Yeah, I'm sorry, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Almost won it. So we have something going on here as far as public opinion is concerned. Yeah, I, th I, th I think we definitely do. I think, you know, <coughs> Studs, we of all of us, you know, all of us who've lived through the post-war period, to a very considerable extent, have been formed by that experience. You know, the fact of the Soviet Union, you know, and whether it was correctly defined, you know, by succeeding United States administrations, presidential administrations, as the threat it was alleged to be, is true or not, you know, is something which we will be debating historically for many years, and we certainly can't get into it here. We knew they were, they were on their butt at the end of World War oh, yeah, II sure. with their losses. That yeah. much we do know. Yeah, but we do. I think, I think you know, we talked about that a little before, yeah. but I, I, I'm, I'm going to say, you know, that while the Soviet Union was on its butt yeah. as, as a nation, as a society, because of the beating it took during the Second World War, its international prestige uh, was very, very high, uh, and its ideological influence, yeah, in fact, was so. strong. I mean, you have to accept yeah. that as part of the, yeah, the now perceived we're talking threat, about you know? reputation. Yeah, but, but, but you see what, but, what we're, we're talking about here, you see, is that for good or ill, mm. you know, I believe, because we're talking about public opinion right. here, right, is the United States people need and want to have some sort of threat now we come to, to the big them. one. That's we're continuing. Well, this is a conversation I wanted to have for a long time with Dave McMichael, whom you can gather I obviously admire, uh, who is ex-CIA operative from the headquarters in Langley, Virginia, who was one of the founders of the Association of National Security Alumni of, of former CIA bureau chiefs in many cases and operatives who decided something is cockeyed here, there's a lie being presented to the public and they want to challenge it. They weren't very much involved in the creation of that. This is a memoir in a sense, an oral memoir of, and reflection of Dave McMichael. And so we come, no more evil empire. I have no idea what the military budget is. I know that you know, you know Admiral retired Jean Larocque. Very well. A remarkable, by the way, war hero. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and a big guy in the war college who could be anything he wanted to be in the Navy had he been so inclined, but who's seeking a sort of truth. He's been, he can't call him a peacenik of sorts or whatever. He was in every battle. And he founded a group called the Center for Defense Information, monitoring the, the Pentagon. And he speaks of the wars we were in. So pick up on this matter of needing an enemy now that there's no evil empire. Well, as you know, uh, in the last uh, two years particularly, but the beginning before that, they had what they called a bottom-up, zero-based reevaluation of the threat. 
And uh, basically, the justification, uh, strategic justification for the current level of the United States uh, uh, security or military spending, more probably, is uh, that the United States must be prepared to, to fight simultaneously two uh, wars on the level of the Persian Gulf War. Now, whether this is in any way likely or not is uh, almost beside the point. This is this is the current gospel, and this is what these these projections. Uh, go for. Now, I think it, it's very important to talk in uh, understandable quantitative terms on this. The United States spends currently uh, approximately $280 billions of dollars. I'll, I'll even spare that down just to avoid being controversial. We'll say $260 billions of dollars. Billions. Billions of dollars we're talking on national security spending, of which, by the way, approximately $28 billion is expended on the intelligence system, roughly 12% of that, that amount. Now, let's put this in perspective. You see, that $280 billion is more, 260 let's say, is more than the whole rest of the world spends on its military. That's, we're, we're, you know, like more than half, we're approximately half. $28 billion, which we spend on so-called intelligence, is an amount equal to the defense budgets of such countries, or in some cases exceeding them, of, of, of West Germany, Germany, of France, of the United Kingdom, of Japan, you know, who are among the big, you know, spenders. So we're, we're laying out large bucks on this. Now the question comes up, uh, is because uh, you remember the slogan of the uh, 1992 election, it's the economy stupid, right? Well, it's still the economy stupid. And uh, currently we're watching a, uh, a Congress which is whacking away at domestic programs uh, at the same, and uh, which is uh, uh, very concerned about the deficit, and rightly so because that has a lot to do with the interest rates you pay when you buy your house or car or anything else. And uh, you see, and we're still projecting this immense deficit. And when you look down there, you say, what is being untouched in all of this? Well, it is this immense military budget. And uh, so these bureaucracies which control these budgets in the Pentagon and in the intelligence system I mean, they, they operate like any bureaucracy. They, they fight to maintain their budget. And how do they justify the budget? Well, they have to justify it in terms of presenting a threat in this case. And uh, some of these threats, uh, you know, do not really stand up under a whole lot of analysis. But one thing, and I think uh, I'm philosophizing here and talking from no knowledge. This is merely opinion, as you know. Uh, the one thing that they have learned to rely upon since roughly 1948, uh, when Harry Truman was advised to scare the people to death. Harry Truman was advised by, by a Republican <laughs> senator of Michigan, Vandenberg. That's right. We've got to scare the hell out of the American people to that's get a bigger right. budget. That, that's why it came about. That's so right. So, you know, the public is going to be routinely scared. And see, I dealt with one small little area in which the public was going to be scared. The threat posed by Nicaragua, a country of about two and a half million souls. Gary Trudeau did a wonderful Doonesbury cartoon. At one time, President Reagan, you know, cautioned us that uh, Managua was only about uh, 1,200 miles from Harlingen, Texas. Gary Trudeau, uh, you may remember this cartoon, draws this picture, it's a, it's a living room in Harlingen, Texas. This guy is peering out through the Venetian blinds at the night. His wife says, is it quiet out there? He says, yeah, too quiet, you know? By the way, Reagan did uh, say, President Reagan, it looked like the Nicaraguan may invade, may invade us. Yes, well, through uh, Harlingen, Texas, the yes, two million yes, may invade yes, us. Yes, so. they had uh, they had an unfortunate line in their uh, party anthem, which referred to Los Yankees, huh? an amigo de el, de la unidad. You see, the the Yankees, the enemies of humanity. You see, so this this proved their yeah, their intent. So, as you so here now, 
enemy. Who is the enemy now? Ah, the, the there one we, we are. Must there we are. You billions. see, we, we, we find it hard to give it a name. You see, once we had, when we had the evil empire, it was there. We can talk about uh, Islamic extremism, but of course we have to talk about it cautiously because we have uh, very large interests in oil-producing countries, right. which are Islamic in nature. Uh, we can talk about something as vague as international terrorism, which, you know, by definition is not susceptible to confrontation by standard military forces. Uh, we've got the, uh, the drug war. My, and a matter of fact, one of our members is Mike Levine, whom you may have interviewed at some time, a former DEA agent who has exposed the, uh, you know, what the drug war is all By the way, don't, let's not leave that drug war yeah. and the role of the CIA, if we may, yeah. along the line somewhere yeah, sure. here. Cocaine or drug traffic in this country, pre-CIA involvement and Vietnam mm. and post. Uh, oh, sa yes. Save that for that. I don't mean to interrupt yeah. you. No, 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 no. I think, I think it's keep, important. Keep going. Well... Uh, all, all I can tell you is is that uh, you know there's there is a a very significant yeah. battle, and we're following the money here. You know, for people to so defend very large budgets. The Congress today, as it is, hardly touches uh, this military budget, mm -hmm. even though the empire, evil empire, mm -hmm. the 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 raison debt for the big thing, ninety nine point nine nine percent of it is gone. There got to be new ones created. Whereas the welfare mother will hit her, which is minuscule, obviously, when it comes to dough, mm -hmm. and with the other stuff that's untouched. Mm -hmm. So that's how that... Now, how do you understand... So I thought the media was called liberal media. Now it has the medium, <laughs> that's a liberal played, interpretation of liberal. Played, <laughs> it's a liberal interpretation of a liberal... Yeah, so uh -huh. I suppose that plays a role in all this, does it not? Public yeah, opinion. Yeah, I think, uh, Studs, I, I really don't want to drag this out because this is, you know, I'm getting beyond anything which I can pretend to competence in. But uh, I would like very much to see uh, this matter tested during forthcoming elections to see if, in fact, people can run against, uh, you know, overblown so-called national security spending and succeed. I, I have a belief, you know, that that this will happen. As you know, I took a, a, a rather uh, extensive tour of the United States this year and talked to a lot of people in public parks and whatnot. And what, what's the reaction you found? And uh, when this would come up, you know, just sitting around talking to groups at Lions Club picnics and, you know, I was about to thing. ask, the people you talked to were not converted. People oh, no, in advance. no, no, no. They were just talking about a wide yeah. variety. Yeah, these, I mean, they're just people Mid that I sat down, talked to in cafes or public parks. Yeah, or so, whatnot, for want of know. better phrase, middle America. Yeah, and they want to know who I was, you know, yeah. and what I was doing and so forth. And, tell them, and you know, I, I wasn't out there to, uh, you know, carry out any propaganda effort, but I'd raise this. And I would say that the huge majority of responses, you know, was very sympathetic to the view that this is an area, too, that has to be cut, you know. But uh, they say you're, you're running up against a lot of conventional political wisdom that, you know, you're dead if you run against national security, you see. Well, the point is, of course, is to define national yeah. security. And this is an educational process. Yeah. And uh, once again, we're going to follow the money, you see, because nothing captures people attention, people's attention much more than putting up large dollar signs in and front so of And so following the money. And now we come to something. We again and again and again are all drugs in our lives, mm -hmm. whether it be crime in the streets, whether it be international traffic, mm -hmm. whether it be the Colombian cartel. Drugs and, uh, an outfit with you, one's very familiar, the CIA. And there was a book written by Alfred McCoy. Al, Al McCoy, Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia. And still I remember the standard I did a book. two-hour program that was years ago. Mm -hmm. And what was astonishing about the book, not only was he specific facts, chapter, verse, mm -hmm. he's those Far less drug traffic in our country today, far, far less before the Vietnam War mm -hmm. and before the role of the CIA in it than there is today. He was implicating, if I remember right, the CIA mm -hmm. and drug traffic. Would yep. you mind? Yeah, look, let me, let me tell you something right. that's about this is uh, I would never go so far, you know, uh, although sometimes I feel I would like to as to you know, say, look, the, the CIA or this or that element in the United States security establishment encouraged, supported, profited from narcotics trafficking. I, I, I just won't say it because I couldn't prove it the first place. But I will tell you something I can't prove. 
is that when you begin to conduct so-called covert operations from United States soil and carry them out in areas of the world, such as uh, Southeast Asia, the old Golden Triangle area, such as the Middle East, the areas well, of, of when we say Golden Triangle, just just yeah, well, the old the old clear. Golden. We forget many of the people yeah, sure. listening are young and don't know. Yeah, and many of them do know, don't know. Explain well, this. Like the old the old Golden Triangle were those areas in Laos, Burma, and Thailand, where those borders come together, in which much of the world's uh, basic opium crop was grown and in those areas where much of it was refined into heroin and the controlling element for that as Al McCoy told you years ago was the remnants of the old Guomintang the, as the Chinese nationalist armies operating with CIA sponsorship on the southern borders of China and they controlled the, that, the traffic there and supported themselves largely by it. Uh, the same thing happened, as you know, in uh, where we sponsored the uh, the opposition to the Soviet-imposed rule in Afghanistan. Uh, the the lead guerrilla operator there, Mr. Hekmatyar, you know, who's still around, and we would still like to get those Stingers missiles back from him, by the way. <laughs> but you know, controls uh, a great amount of the current heroin production and distribution from that area. Cocaine, you see channel through Central America while we're running the operation. What I want to say is this, is that when you set up a situation where for operational purposes you are looking the other way or where you're having a significant amount of air and ship traffic which is going in and out of the United States under cover of a covert operation which is not subject to uh, normal customs inspection or police inspection, you see, you open up enormous opportunities for the kind of people you recruit into these types of operations. And believe me, it is, uh, well, listen, something. You guys in Chicago here lived uh, a long time ago through Prohibition. You know something about the way, you know, illegal markets are organized and operate. So it's, it's no surprise. What I will tell people is that covert operations and the drug trafficking go together like dogs and fleas. That's just the way it works. I mean, there's no, there's no denying that. Al McCoy demonstrated carefully mm -hmm. in, in uh, Southeast Asia. Bob Parry and others have demonstrated it, and Leslie Coburn in, uh, and Peter uh, uh, Dale Scott very carefully in the well, case of Central America. People yeah. who have been establishment journalists. Uh, sure. Robert Parry, for example, has a, an excellent uh, track record. Mm. And where Very was he good. last before when he was still mainstream? Now he's challenging because some of his stuff has been killed for yeah, years. Yeah, Bob's a, Bob's a very fine, very sound And he's journalist. been covering, he did, where was he last? Let's see. Oh, Bob was uh, doing, uh, uh, matter of fact, his last big projects for uh, a public television frontline was on the so-called October Surprises yeah, there. But he's, he was, and previous yeah. to that was with Newsweek and then with the Associated Press. So that's certain yeah. journalists, a minority, of course, because yeah. it well, takes a certain courage and loss of job to <laughs> do that, as it does yeah, CIA that's a, guys. that's a factor. Move to ask you about now, events yeah. and situations, ah, good, and, what you, I want to talk and what you see. This is sort of a roundup of everything. It's a, as you can see, sort of an oral, informal oral memoir of Dave McMichael, former CIA operative from the headquarters at Langley, Virginia, uh, who is one of the founders of the Association for the National Security of Alumni. Uh, still around and about the group of yeah, yeah, we're, graduates. we're you know we're still functioning after a fashion. We're um, Maybe functioning is not even the right word, but we're still together. Yeah. But as we pick up the news, each day there's some aspect of it. I'll ask about Haiti in a moment, the, the, mm -hmm. the guys who, the Hunter boys who did somewhere CIA mm -hmm. trained, were they not somewhere, of the uh, Haiti, Haitian guys. That is true. Yeah. Oh boy. And the CIA's attitude toward Aristide is not the most beneficent, I take it. That I can, I can tell you a good story about that too. Please. You know, I uh, uh, sat and talked with the Senator Harkins a week ago of Iowa. And, uh, you know, Senator Harkins had been uh, one of the supporters of the uh, return to uh, office, constitutional office of uh, uh, President Aristide in, uh, in Haiti. And you may recall that at about the time a year or so ago when uh, uh, the, the pressure was on to uh, carry out this uh, particular aspect of American policy, 
uh, the the CIA gave a briefing, a supposedly closed-door briefing to the uh, Senate Foreign Relations Committee under the redoubtable Senator Jesse Helms, you know, at which uh, a former colleague of mine, whose name was in the newspapers at the time, so I can give it to you, is Brian Littell, a man whom, with whom I clashed frequently during my years, uh, appeared and uh, gave this horrific description of uh, President Aristide as, as, as a murderous psychopath. And uh, Harkins described how after that, uh, that meeting, which he did not attend, several other senators came back from his to his office knowing his support for Aristide and said, Tom, we can't support this guy. I mean, this guy is like, this is awful. So Senator Harkins called for uh, uh, the then director of Central Intelligence, recently departed uh, R. James Woolsey, to get, come to his office. What is this? Oh, yes. He said, this is, this is it? said, well, he said, you've described uh, Aristide's hospitalization in Canada for these psychopathic tendencies. I want to check with that hospital. Can you give me the, the name of the hospital? No, I can't do that. That would reveal our sources and methods. <laughs> to tell you how the childish level to which this went is that after several days of back and forthing on this, Mr. Woolsey finally came to Senator Harkin's office and presented him with a list of 10 hospitals in Canada. He said, one of them might be it, he said, but you'll have to find it. Oh boy. And, and as a matter of fact, he did find it very easily. The hospital denied all, you see. And there were other aspects of this, too, but it tells you why uh, Jim well, Wilsey wore out his press We have a number of columnists here in town as elsewhere who speak of him as... Oh, yeah. So we have the liberal press, of course. Yeah, right? well, you see, this was, this was so a very called. clear, and I, I feel yeah. very badly about this one, because a very clear attempt by persons within the security establishment who opposed the Haitian policy to, uh, you know, to do this. And you're asking, for example, yes, all the persons, you know, directing that murderous uh, military regime there, in fact, at one time or another, were on the CIA payroll. We've just had this case, which uh, you know about, where uh, uh, Jennifer uh, Hanbury. A word about that. Yes, As sir. we're talking right now, yeah. David, Mike, and I, a young American, Jennifer, is it? Hanbury. Hanbury, was married to a Guatemalan guy who was mm -hmm. uh, fighting whoever the junta is, the brutes there, uh, was missing. Pick up on, when we just got the news the other day. Why don't you tell us? Yeah, well, in, in fact, Jennifer has been around for the last couple of years in a campaign trying to find out what, had in fact, had happened to her husband. She had information that he had been captured alive and, uh, you know, believed he might still be alive and wanted to find him, naturally enough. This was denied. It was uh, claimed he'd been killed in, uh, in, uh, in fighting in Guatemala. And uh, just within the last two days, uh, a, from a surprising source, uh, Congressman Bob Torricelli, on, Bob Torricelli, Democrat of New Jersey, on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, came forward and announced that, in fact, Hanbury, as well as an, as an American citizen, a man named Michael Devine, who'd run a hotel down in Guatemala, had, in fact, been assassinated by a named uh, Guatemalan military official who, it happens, was a paid agent of the Central Intelligence Agency. What makes this even more heinous is that Mr. Torricelli revealed that this information had in fact been known and established within the United States government for quite a few months and had been officially denied. And this, uh, this is, is, is a first-rate scandal, but we've had them before. American nuns were shot down in, uh, in El Salvador, you know, young Americans. Uh, As you're talking, I'm thinking of all the stuff that adds up, the Chilean situation. Oh, the sure. Chile and it's those a sad, facts, sad history. The destabilization of Allende, legally elected. And we go down the line, El Salvador, the death squads mm -hmm. and the connection with the train being trained. Dobosan death squad guy was trained sure. here, and too. I, I, wanna, I wanna to, if I can, I'd yeah. like to jump in, because I know we don't have a lot of time right now. Go there. ahead because we're talking about El Salvador in yeah. the early 1980s, a scary situation. I mean, scary. Uh, we had an ambassador, the last Carter ambassador down in, in, in uh, El Salvador. His name was Robert White. Bob White, who now heads the Center for International Policy in Washington, D.C., a distinguished Foreign Service officer, also former ambassador to Paraguay, uh, had the sad duty in 1980 of going to the roadside outside of San Salvador and excavating the bodies of four American nuns, you know, who had been brutally raped and murdered by the Salvadoran security forces. Uh, 
in any case, Mr. White had a lot of problems with uh, the Central Intelligence Agency in El Salvador. And as a matter of fact, had the rare distinction of firing his Central Intelligence Agency station chief down there on the grounds that they simply refused to report to him on the doings of a certain Colonel Carranza, Nicholas Carranza, who was Dobison's boss and who was also a CIA agent. Uh, now, Bob came away from that experience in El Salvador a very bruised person. And in his current capacity as head of the uh, Center for International Policy, a not-for-profit group in Washington, uh, he has uh, organized a study which will be held uh, sort of as the, the parallel uh, study to the uh, Aspen Commission, which is looking at the future of our intelligence system, the official body. And uh, we're going to, he is going to, and I, I'm proud to say I'm associated with this mm -hmm. study, uh, uh, carry out a, a very high-profile examination of, in fact, what are the intelligence needs of the United States in this post-Cold War period, how should they be carried out, you know, and what rules should be laid down. And uh, I, I have great hopes that uh, this, this study, which is to be carried out on a national basis to engage through uh, uh, groups throughout the country, you know, a high-level public debate on this, make it a political issue for 1996, that maybe we can get it off the dime. Well, this, of course, what you, I was about to ask you, what's to be done, and you just said it in a sense, to make this a key issue to open up all the I, I hope so. You know, I'll tell you, Studs, when we started talking about this a while ago, I said, you know, you start with the constitutional issue, which is always a mistake, because like they say, who cares about the Constitution, yeah. really? You try. Well, Ali North made that clear oh, way of back. Course. He, of course he did. It doesn't of course matter he did. what it is. Yeah. I'm doing it. Well, sure. I tell you. The yeah, sure. I mean, these guys, they could care less. It just yeah. gets in the way. Yeah. All right. So you, uh, you try it from the humanitarian angle. You bring out the bodies and lay them out there. It doesn't seem to make no. a huge amount of impression. Okay. You're, you're looking at, uh, in this case, you know, and I hate to get down to this level. Go ahead. But I can get down pretty low. Okay. Is we're looking at the money the again. Money. And if we can, you know, I, I want to see the constitutional issue brought forward. I want to see the foreign policy you issue. You want to see humanitarianism, forward. but by yeah. God, you're saying follow them. What's it going to cost me sure. that I should not have to pay? That's right. So if I get off the dime of a welfare mother and speak of what is 50 million times more expensive. Absolutely. Maybe I might be close to making a buck or two. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, you know, I, I, I really, that, that sounds pretty uh, cynical. No, it isn't cynical. But I'm uh, afraid it's realistic But we want, you know, this is a country, like any other country, you know, that needs uh, political solutions. There's a lot to more to ask Dave McMichael, but I think this first hour is a very <laughs> revealing one indeed. And I hope we have another one to follow up, and I hope, too, you have a book forthcoming, your own memoir involving all this, well, too. And this, by way of... Oh, that mine enemy would write a book, as they say. <laughs> by way of thanking you very much indeed. Okay, well, thanks for having me, and uh, I'd, I'd like, in closing, to say that uh, as we get going on this other, uh, if we get another chance and we can get uh, Mr. Bob White in here, I think you'd like to talk to him. He was a guest once upon a time uh, here, good. but I'd love to have an encore yeah, with him yeah. and you together. Thank you very Terrific. much. Terrific.